No person would give up even an inch of their estate, and the slightest dispute with a neighbor can mean hell to pay. Yet, we easily let others encroach on our lives. Worse, we often pave the way for those who will take it over. No person hands out their money to passers-by, but to how many do each of us hand out our lives? We're tight-fisted with property and money, yet think too little of wasting time, the one thing about which we should all be the toughest misers. That quote from Seneca ties to our topic today. We're talking about essentialism. I'm talking about it with brand strategist and designer Catherine Blakemore. It's an awesome conversation. We have a great time sharing this information with you. She is very wise on this topic of essentialism and is living it in a very strong way. You are going to benefit from this episode, and I know you're going to enjoy it as much as I did in actually having this conversation. So I can't wait to share it with you. Let's explore this topic of essentialism now. Michael, hit it. Welcome to the Wake Up Eager Workforce Podcast, a show designed for leaders, trainers, and consultants who are responsible for employee selection and professional development. Each episode is packed full with insider tips, best practices, expert interviews, and inspiration. Please welcome the host who is helping leaders, trainers, and consultants everywhere, Susie Price. Hi there, this is Susie Price of Priceless Professional Development, and you're listening to the Wake Up Eager Workforce Podcast, where we cover everything related to helping you reduce drama, increase energy, and build commitment in a Wake Up Eager Workforce. So I am a professional facilitator and started my company, Priceless Professional Development, in 2004. We're experts in an assessment science called Trimetrics, and what we do is help you use that science throughout the life cycle of your employees. We also train and certify others to become experts in the science, and we provide thought leadership through our books, our blog, and this podcast. And so if you want to know all the show notes or see all the episodes that we've had at the Wake Up Eager Workforce podcast, go to wakeupeagerworkforce.com, wakeupeagerworkforce.com. There's our directory. There's uh, links to find us on Spotify, and we also have an Android app and an Apple app, and those are both highlighted there. You can also click a button there and listen to episodes on the computer. So lots of ways to listen to the podcast. You can also listen to us on your favorite podcast app by typing in Wake Up Eager Workforce. So today is starting a little mini series where I'm sharing my top mind, body, spirit tips over the last year and going forward. And I'm having conversations with people about those tips. So last year, I started doing Wake Up Eager Wednesday tips, and I uh, took everything that I shared last year, 2019, and put it in an ebook. And that ebook is 123 Mind, Body, Spirit Tips, and it's complimentary. If you go to wakeupeager.com, you can find the book, and then you can also find the tips for 2020. So this year, instead of doing Mind, Body, Spirit Tips every Wednesday, what I'm sharing are things about the life cycle of an employee. So in tips, so the goal is for it to be content rich, to give you tools and reminders and a very quick something to read. And again, we'll at the end of the year, put these in another ebook. But if you go to wakeupeager.com, you'll not only get the complimentary ebook, you'll get to see all of the latest tips, the weekly tips there 
shared about hiring, stress management, team building. I share tools and resources. If you use Tribe Metrics, there's tips in there about that as well. I also would like to ask you if you have feedback about this episode or other episodes, please reach out and share if you get great results or something something new you learned. Let me know. It helps me know that you've listened and allow me to respond. Also would love to get your input via an, another vehicle. It's um, a way that you can push a button and record a message, and then we could use your feedback with your permission on a future episode. So that is something new. If you go to SpeakPipe, Speak, S-P-E-A-K, Pipe, P-I-P-E dot com forward slash wake up your workforce, you will see a little microphone. It's purple. You click it and record a message. I'd love to get some feedback about your tune-in time. So what do you do for reflection and tune-in time? And I will use it on an episode that's coming up. So go to speakpipe.com forward slash wake up eager workforce. Leave us feedback on this episode or others. And also you can leave me feedback around what do you do for tune-in time, like your quiet time, your reflection time. We talk about that some in this episode, and I'm actually devoting a full podcast episode coming up into, I think it'll be episode number 68 that I'm recording it around tune-in time. All right, this is episode number 66, and we're sharing this in the series, the number one wake up eager mind tip, and that is essentialism. And I'm having a conversation with Catherine Blakemore, and we're going to talk a lot about a book called Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less by Greg McEwen. And we're going to talk about what essentialism is. You're going to find out about the benefits. You're going to find out about the challenges. We're going to share tools and resources. We're going to talk about her career as a brand strategist and designer, people who've influenced her. And it's a duo interview in that discussion where both are sharing. So I'm sharing insights, um, my answers to the questions. She's sharing her answers to the questions. It was a fun podcast to record and discussion. And it's, there's so many insights that it's. I think you're going to thoroughly enjoy it. I want to touch base a little bit on essentialism. And tell you a little bit about my journey with it. I first heard about the topic of essentialism when Greg McEwen, the author of the book Essentialism, was interviewed by Tim Ferriss on the Tim Ferriss podcast. It's one of my favorite podcasts I listen to often. And I listened to the podcast twice and was super excited about it. So then I, I was on a plane trip to Arizona. It was January 2018, and I was listening to the Audible book essentialism, the disciplined pursuit of less. And it's that kind of book where I took a million notes first off. And then once I landed, I told everybody that I talked to about it. (laughs) Have you read the book? Have you thought about this? It really spoke to me. So not only did I listen to the book once or twice on Audible, I've listened to it several times. I referenced it in my tips, the Wake Up Eager Wednesday tips, at least 10 different times all throughout last year. The questions that were being asked when you go get the ebook, you'll see them referenced at least 10 different times in different ways, different insights and things that I was thinking about. I have it in my calendar that I look at every day, which is a notebook. I created a paper file with notes about essentialism. I've got a computer file with notes about it. And the way I figured out that Catherine was also a fan of the uh, essentialism 
book was that we were doing a sharing at the recent Hartman conference at the in the fall of 2019, and I had just met her. Uh, she is now on the board. We're both on the uh, Robert S. Hartman board together, and I've really enjoyed working with her on the board, and I've also hired her to help me with some branding and messaging. But what I remember at the conference was when the sharing at the end, I shared that how the book of essentialism had really highlighted that the one thing that I want to focus on and that, you know, is my big thing, the thing I want to go big on is trimetrics and is this science and helping others learn the science and use the science, which is why I ended up on the Hartman board, because it ties into my intent. And as soon as I mentioned the book Essentialism, you know, she turned around and looked and, and, you know, raised her hand like, oh, yeah, I love that book, too. So we had had our conversation about it. So as we get into this discussion, I realize how smart I am that I picked her <laughs> to be on this podcast because she is really an expert on essentialism. She could write the book uh, and she's passionate. And you're going to find it in here and tell you a little bit about her background. She's the owner of Treadway Company. She's the founder of Enhance Freelance. She's fiercely pragmatic and solutions oriented. You'll see that as we talk. She likes to resolve business problems using design thinking. She thinks about brand experiences. She has humor. She's, she's just a joy to work with. She's got her undergrad in communication and a master's degree in strategic communication. The owner and creative director of Treadway and then founder of e Enhance and Freelance, which that actually is a digital resource shop for designers, creatives, and consultants. So that's really cool. As a brand consultant, she works with all kinds of industries, a nonprofit, healthcare, law, real estate, interior design. She's working with me as a consultant. She's helped me so much in one conversation. We had one 90-minute conversation and I just got so much that was so helpful, and I've made so many changes, big and small, um, based on her feedback. So she's awesome. And we talk a little bit about something she shares in her bio, which is, says that she she's a big believer in learning as much as you teach, giving back more than you've been given, and seeking understanding before trying to be understood. And so she is uh, doing all of that and more, and you're going to hear that in this episode. And as I mentioned, we are doing a dual sharing because I enjoy her company so much. And in the past on one of the podcasts with Roger Price, he talked about, hey, I'm going to interview you sometime and get your answers to these questions. So I decided Roger and I have not been able to get together to do that. So I decided that uh, Catherine and I would do it. So as we're answering all the questions about our who's influenced us and uh, books that we love and that type of thing we both share. So that was completely fun. So it's a little bit longer because of that, uh, but I hopefully, uh, I believe you'll find it worth it. So the show notes again are at pricelessprofessional.com forward slash essentialism. All right, Catherine, thank you for being here. How are you today? Thank you so much for having me, Susie. I am doing well. I am just absolutely enthused to be talking about all things essentialism. All right. So here's the hardest question. I had a hard time with it. What are your top three takeaways from the book Essentialism? Yeah, that's really hard to boil it down to just three because I've read this book so many times over so many years and adopted many of the different and incredible principles in different instances of my life, whether it's business or personal. But the first one that always comes to mind when I think about this book and when I share it with anybody is when Greg says, if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. 
And that's really the crux of this essentialist dilemma is you have to first have this understanding before embarking on becoming an essentialist. And so that understanding isn't just that you need to prioritize your life, but that your life is at risk of being prioritized by someone else if you don't focus in on your essentialist intent. So that's the first big one that comes to mind. Love it. And and then, yeah, as as a brand strategist and designer, it's really interesting for me to put on that hat when I read this book, to take myself outside of who I am as an individual and put myself in the book as a consultant as a professional. So this next piece, my second takeaway is really what speaks to me as a designer. And it's the way of the essentialist means living by design and not by default. And it seems so simple. Like it seems so like, oh, of course I live by design. Of course I make choices in my life that are by design. But when you're really tasked with ensuring intentionality in every single thing you do, you start to realize how little in your life is actually by design. So from what's sitting on your desk right now, what's sitting in your car, what you wear, what you don't wear, what social settings you engage in, and so many more things outside of just your your business and your work, but every single choice you make in your life is either by design or by default. And it's interesting Mm -hmm. that so many things are by default that we don't realize. And then, you know, in that work setting, the other huge, I mean, it's so hard to boil it down to three, but the other huge <laughs> takeaway from this book yeah. is, is really that when Greg mentions, he tells a story in the book and he mentions a leader telling Greg of an experience in a company that talked of PRI 1, PRI 2, PRI 3, PRI 4, PRI 5. So five priorities, all with the abbreviation PRI at the front, giving the impression that many things were the priority. But what that actually means is nothing is the priority. So in essence, and this is what I tell a lot of my clients and what I think of in my own life every day with work, that you can truly only have one priority. So what is that priority going to be? Hmm. Yeah. When you first hear his questions and you first take that in, you think, well, I want everything to be a priority, you know, and my number one takeaway is kind of ties to what you just said, which was if I could be truly excellent at only one thing, what would it be? Mm, you know, that so question, you know, so that that's the thing that, you know, has really stuck with me. And from that, making that decision on what that is, it's really changed a lot of things. But it's hard. Do you find with clients that uh, consultants or, you know, all the different people you work with, people just push against the idea of making one thing the priority or what you're truly excellent at focusing on it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for everything that I do with brand strategy, it's what, you know, Greg refers to as a trade-off. Like you do have to make decisions and those trade-offs affect not only the longevity of your business, but your focus, your clientele, but you have to do it. And it's the not doing it, that it's still a choice. And so absolutely, I think that goes into it tremendously on choosing what you're excellent at because everybody wants to be excellent at so many things. But when you truly boil down what is excellence, it can be really challenging to define that for yourself and for your business. And he gives a little formula, and I have it written down here. I've got notes all over my desk from all my favorite things. Uh, you and I are two peas in a pod around that. But I like the formula is like, uh, what am I most passionate about? I don't have the exact one, and I have it in my notes somewhere. I'll find it and put it in the show notes. But like, what am I most passionate about? Where are my talents? What does the world need, you know, and the world would benefit from, you know, and then what, you know, then to me, the one that always I keep coming back to is if I could be truly excellent, 
you know, what would it be? Are there other kind of questions that you guide people with when you're doing your brand strategy and design work or do those kind of hit it? I mean, yeah, that's definitely a big part of it. And I think one of the biggest things I see in what I do is a just complete lack of clarity on the business or entrepreneurs, what Greg calls the essential intent. So what is the essential intent of, you know, if I could be excellent at one thing, what would it be? And ultimately, that's where brand strategy comes into play. So developing a brand strategy really requires me bringing my essentialist view, but also the business owner or CEO also adopting that essentialist view. Uh, There's so many infinite possibilities for a brand, but focusing in on just those vital few is not something they intrinsically want to do. It's something they know they have to do, but it can be really difficult. So I think the questions, they vary extensively depending on the industry and of course, you know, the personalities that I'm working with, but it's really just what is the essential intent of this business? And you'd be surprised how many businesses and companies I work with don't have one single sentence of their essential intent. In other words, we call it a positioning statement or all sorts of jargon with that. But that essential intent is lacking. And I mean, I would challenge anyone to go review five websites of brands they like and see if they could find one sentence with the essential intent. And it's really, really difficult to boil down. And that's why people don't do it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like when you give a talk, a 15 minute talk is so much harder than a full day workshop, you know, or so Mm -hmm, for this example, the, you know, uh, having a one statement that says what our essential intent is is so much harder than having 10 core values or, you know, because you have to then really make some decisions. That's so interesting. Well, I was just going to say within brand strategy, it also, that essential intention, that brand strategy also means actually adhering to it. So not just writing it, articulating it and setting it aside, but adhering to it in all you do and all the business does from content production to choice of client to interiors, decorating, all sorts of things. But brand strategy, like that essential intent, in the words of you know what Greg says in the book, it eliminates a universe of other options and strategically maps a course for the next 5, 10, or even 20 years of your life and your business's future. So talk about clarity. Once you get comfortable mm-hmm. on what your essential intent is, that's what's so exciting about essentialism is the clarity. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, it, and it's with brand and with marketing, but it's just also with like me as a consultant, that's an important part. And that's something you're really helping me with is uh, the branding piece and the design of how things look and feel. But mm-hmm. also for me, like day to day, and and I know you and your business, same thing, you know, how do I spend my time? What do I say yes to? What do I say mm-hmm. no to? And the clarity, mm-hmm. you know, when I decided what I want to be truly excellent at, when I said that, then a lot of things changed. Absolutely. It's, it's taken me a little while to unwind and I'm still getting caught in my shorts at times <laughs> saying yes to things because, <laughs> you know, people expect it and that type of thing, but um, well, it's yeah, better and better. I think that Absolutely. That goes into the model of becoming an essentialist. You don't just suddenly wake up one day and you were a non-essentialist yesterday and you're an essentialist today. But every part of essentialism is a cognitive and conscious choice that is made every single day. So you might make the wrong choices, but that doesn't change your essentialist intent. And I think that's what's so beautiful about this model and this way of thinking and approaching your life is that it's not all or nothing. It's not do or die. It's very flexible in the sense that you are continually growing in this model adapts to the fact that as an individual, you are growing 
as an essentialist, you're choosing to, you're engaging with something carefully and considerately and that can be hard and it can take yeah. time. Yes. And, you know, the, the places where I have said yes, when I a little voice was say, because the voice, the essentialist voice wasn't strong enough mm-hmm. yet, where I've said yes, it's been OK, like you say, because uh, it, and I do believe this just in general for ever new essentialism. But what I do understand is when I do something that is not the best fit, I'm so much clearer. It just makes my clarity. I just go back to it. it's like, OK, you said this is what you really care about. And so I don't really beat myself up so much. As, as say, okay, back to it, you know, we're going to have, nothing's just a straight line, you know, we're going to have some squiggly yeah. movement. <laughs> well, exactly. So, and he even says it's a disciplined pursuit of less. It's, an, it's yes. an active pursuit. It's an engaged verb. It is not something you are and then just stagnantly exist in. It's an actual disciplined day-to-day pursuit. And I think that's pursuit. what, you know, just like I said, it's yeah. so beautiful about it. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so that this other question that I've gotten from his book that's kind of in my top three is, is this the most important thing I should be doing my time and resources right now? Mm-hmm. So that kind of ties into what we're talking about. So, so it's like that. And I actually have that on my calendar. I have both questions. If I could be truly excellent. And then is this the most important thing I should be doing my time and resources right now? Yep. That is my check, you know, and I keep transferring it. I go to my front of my calendar. Uh, every time I get a new calendar, I go back and look at it. I've got it sitting here right now and go, okay, yeah, that was one where you said yes. And it wasn't the most important thing I should be doing, you know? Um, yeah. So well, and it's, it's hard check. because you don't, it's always hindsight 2020, right? Like when you're passionate and you're excited, like, you know, both of us, we are, we get excited about so many things. And when that excitement is so overwhelming, that there is no other option, it can be really difficult to discern if this is one of the trivial many or one of the vital few. And sometimes you just have to do it in order to know if, you know, something like that and that feeling that you had, that idea you had is something that you should be spending your time and resources on. And sometimes it it does take exploring it to know, okay, that's outside of my essentialist intent for myself and my business. And um, I think I mean, it's really just a work in progress, but I mean, it's the most worthy thing to work toward. Yeah, to know that's the goal. He even, he was interviewed by Tim Ferriss, and that's how I found him. Oh, I love that podcast. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I figured you'd listen to it. I listened to it like two or three times, and I just listened to it yeah. again recently in preparation for our conversation. I was listening to it this morning for our oh, you were? And he even says See, that was assist- a good use of our time. Yes, it was. There we go. His assistant went on vacation for a few months or thirty days or whatever, and he got himself in trouble because people were asking him to do stuff. and And he's pretty clear, and I think he does an excellent job. But again, you know, he said, "Oh, she was like, what? You committed to things you said you weren't going to commit to." So. So it kind of made me smile that mm-hmm. he was kind of telling on himself. It's like, okay, this is a journey. <laughs> yeah. And, well, we and all... what I love about, yeah, what his story too, about how he, this is what he learned. I mean, this is what he saw for 20 years that he was mulling over this question. And, and that's what's, again, so beautiful about this model is it's not just another, you know, business development or personal development book stemming from a year of insight. It's stemming from, you know, almost 20 years of mulling over this concept. And I just think Greg does an excellent job of boiling it down in a way that's really, really applicable to our everyday together with other people, our together time with ourselves and our work time and all that. Yeah. 
And that's what made it so hard for us to pick our top three because there's so many takeaways. It's so it's so rich. It's one of those books, I think, that will stand the test of time because there's just so much in it that is so helpful. Yeah, absolutely. One of the other top takeaways that I'll share, so we're given a good list, which I like that we had some different things is, I and I did this and I, I just went back and revisited it too, but is to do a don't do list. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really helpful. So, you know, here's what's essential. And I actually have a list personally and professionally. I'm sitting here looking at it right now. And then well, mm-hmm. here's what's non-essential. And so there are things where I actually made myself put, no, I am not going to do this, which was really yeah. hard really hard because some of these things are things I like, but it's, you know, the good for the great, right? Letting go of the good, letting go to the good so and go do the great. Um, so, yeah. no. And I just see one right now that I said I would not do, and uh, somebody just reached out to me and asked me to do it, and I was kind of like, well, they kind of want me to do it, so it's good we're having this conversation because I'm going to say no to it. But then there were some I said I'll limit, you know, and then and then mm-hmm. the personal, I did the personal non-essentials too. Um, mm, that's a good one. That's a hard one. Yeah, that's a hard one because mm-hmm. people will do this stuff. But boy, I love my essentialist. When I look at that, I feel a sense of you know, just, yeah, that clarity, it it adds ease. And I think we live in a world where we are so inundated by information, by knowledge sources, by notifications, by busyness. And we have adopted this mentality that busy equals success or busy equals good. And that is so counter to this idea of the essentialist where time and task and intent is chosen so specifically and so um, intentionally. And that's why I think it's such a direct counter because it'd be easy to just react and say, yes, I want to do that thing that you emailed me about that's kind of on my limit, but maybe don't do list. It's easy to react and say, well, that's just another good thing. But essentialism, you know, it does, it's good to great. You have to sacrifice some of what is good to get to what is great. Love that. How have these ideas, since you've been, it sounds like you read this book a couple of years ago, correct? A couple, uh-huh. yep. years. How have they impacted you? Can you think of changes that you've made personally, professionally, any examples? I mean, it's just countless. I mean, I've re- I, I did read this book for the first time um, a few years ago, probably three or four years ago, and I've read it every year since. So this is something that I have gone back to as a foundational understanding for my intent for my life. So I've probably adopted this book on what may seem like the extreme side of things, but I think it's because it's a worthy, worthy model to aspire to because it's talking about how you can give the best and fullest and most intentional contribution to the world around you, but you have to make sacrifices in order to do that. So I mean, I guess how they've impacted me personally and professionally, it's just a ruthless, relentless editing of self, of work, of focus, and of community. So kind of going back to what you were saying, where you do your personal non-essential items and essential items, and that can be really hard because Mm -hmm. people, they don't always, you know, see and maybe even accept how my essentialism will impact them. Because this really means, you know, we're talking about what Greg talks about in the book is that the first act of the essentialist is to start scanning your environment for those vital few and eagerly 
eliminate the trivial many. So actually actively enjoying the elimination of the trivial many in your life. And a lot of people just aren't going to understand that because, you know, whether it's people, things, conversations, ideas that you just no longer choose to engage in. And then, of course, more time spent toward your defined purpose, a purpose that might be drastically different than how you used to be as a non-essentialist. And that, that can be really difficult, I feel, for others to understand. So for me, the adoption of being an essentialist in everything from my personal life to my work life to my home, all of these things, they cause a disruption, if you will, in the natural flow. And it's supposed to. But I think getting over that, that first, I think that first year of really working towards this was really difficult. And I think within that too, is I'm, I gravitate towards minimalism as a construct for visual space in my home and purchases. And I don't engage well with excess. And this is just something I've learned because of essentialism and they both bleed into each other separately and together. But yeah, it can be, I think, I guess it's impacted everything is the short answer to that question but it's been a challenge. So what's one or two specific things you said you've done ruthless editing? What would be a before Mm. and after on something? So before I did this and now I do this. Yeah. So what would be an example? Before I was aggressively reactive to email, to work. I often talked about myself as a firefighter. Like I would just be putting out fires And so that was before. And then as an essentialist, I am aggressively proactive. So no longer being a firefighter, but being one that plans fire escapes, for instance, if we're using that metaphor. So I think with this ruthless editing of my emotional responses to things, I was formerly quite reactive and now very, very proactive. So that that was an essentialist shift for me. I think, I feel like for me, it was almost unconscious um, on the ways that I adopted this, but it's bled into so many things. So one of these things is, I believe, conversations and what we choose to talk about and being essentialist in what we talk about. I think the virtues of, you know, not gossiping and talking about ideas instead of people and things, these are these are things we know as well-rounded people, but they're things that if you analyze every conversation in your day-to-day life, and if every conversation was essential or non-essential, you'd actually be surprised how much time we spend speaking and engaging with things that are more and not better instead of less, but better. Mm. I think scanning those conversations for value. And again, for me, all of this goes back to what Greg calls, you know, your highest contribution to the world around you. And if I'm giving my highest contribution, it's not with a non-essentialist conversation. It's with an essentialist one. Mm. So conversations have changed. It sounds like mm-hmm. how you manage your day has changed. You used to just respond to emails. And what I'm envisioning mm-hmm. is you're maybe blocking out your days or mm-hmm. what is it there? Oh, I'm a, I'm a big time blocker. Yeah, I guess that, that brings up a great point, Susie. Yeah, I'm so glad that you intuited that because that was something that did come from essentialism was a was a really strong adherence to time blocking. So my morning rituals, the focus of each day, what those are on. In the book, he mentions uh, do not call Mondays or no call Mondays. Uh, that's one of the people that he interviewed. And well, that's not my model of being a do not call Monday, really yep. specifically dedicating time was a huge transformation from this book because you know how good time blocking is. But then yes. until you connect the essentialist core intent of your life with the value of time blocking, you'll never actually adhere to your own time blocking. So absolutely, you're dead on with that. 
Yeah, until you're kind of you're bought into, okay, is this the best use of my time and resources right now? And then you're bought mm-hmm. into the idea of I want to, I want to live this life fully. I want to bring my highest level of contribution in my by mm-hmm. my doing that I am most satisfied, I am most fulfilled, and that's how I make a difference in the world. Um, and then mm-hmm. in order to do that, we have to make decisions. So it's interesting. What are a couple of your kind of time block things? Do you say, because uh, it probably be interesting to people. I know it are TTI, Success Insights. I know they've changed to where they only have meetings on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And I know Rick, mm. Rick Bowers has talked about what a difference that has made. They don't have meetings all spread out the week. You know, so you you know, they have meetings there. I think it's their internal meetings, Tuesdays and Thursdays. And so that's been yeah. a, a small example of that. What are some, a uh, couple of different things that you say that you've done? Because my sense is you're way better at this than I am in regard to structure. Because <laughs> <laughs> that would not be my greatest strength. And I think that's <laughs> one of your great talents. So, um, oh, thank you. Oh, let me learn from you, my dear. What are oh, some Okay, things? well, I just pulled up my calendar so I could tell okay. you exactly yeah, how I time block. some um, examples yes. how you do yes, it. I put that, you do. exactly. So time blocking, I do it both <laughs> digitally and physically. I am a big physical day planner kind of person. I believe that is, it fundamentally matches with my essentialist intent of not just jumping into a screen. So I have a custom day planner that has my weeks, my to-dos, my priority my gratitudes, meals, habits, all those kinds of things. And so for me, I time block in two different areas. So I'm never not seeing what I'm supposed to be doing. Because again, I really love that structure. I love those boundaries. But so for me, Mondays are always, I time block from nine to noon. So this is sort of my, you know, this is my confirmed, this is what I'm doing. So nine to noon on Mondays is what I call CEO time. That's all the real big picture stuff. I actually even have in the calendar what the tasks must include whether it's personal notes, doing financial management, system organizing, uh, vision setting, strategic partnership development, all of that stuff is within CEO time. On Wednesday afternoons from 12 to 4, I've got content development. So this is blog writing. This would be putting together case studies from past clients, any sort of content development. And that was a lot more relevant when I had my company on social media, but I don't anymore because that was not essential for me. So then on Friday from nine to noon, I also have product development. So any products that I'm working on, that's really focused time. Sometimes that bleeds into content development, depending on you know what it is. But those are my three non-negotiables every single week. And on Wednesday mornings, I like to treat myself to a slow morning. So whether it's walking or enjoying my tea or reading, I try and have the slowest possible morning bleeding into 11 a.m. around on Wednesday. So that, those are my non-negotiables every week. We'll love it. Great examples. Yeah, that's awesome. I love it. It's, I mean, I like the guidelines. I'm, I'm a rule kind of girl. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. And I'm not so good at the rules. Now, a couple of things that I do. One is I always have tune-in time. Um, so mm. every day well, without exception, and I might do it, I allow myself to do it as often as I want during the day, but I never start the day without having done it. And to me, mm-hmm. that's writing, it's meditation, it's quiet time. And then the other thing mm-hmm. I do is I have, um, so I'm not as good, but I'm better. But uh, the other thing I do is a workout. I do something physical. So it'll be mm. 
I used to be a little bit more uh, hectic about that. And now I've kind of relaxed that a little bit, but, but Mm -hmm. I'm always doing something physical every single day uh, because I am in my head a lot and I am a thinker and I love knowledge and I could get all lost in it, you know, like the absent-minded professor. (laughs) So I have to (laughs) make sure that I pay attention physically. So those are my two every single day non-negotiables. Everything else, you know, I kind of have a loose system, but uh, I like what you shared though, because some of that I'm going to copy some of what you have there, blocking out some time. Well, and what's great about the blocking out the time is it, again, I think it just goes right back. Everything I feel like in my life goes back to essentialism, but like it goes (laughs) right back to this idea of taking a moment. So when I, you know, when, you know, noon hits on Wednesdays for content development, if I pause when, you know, with tune in time or whatever it is, and I can discern what really matters in that moment for content development, which unless you're, if you're moving through your week without any sort of boundary or time set aside, then how will you discern, how will you know what is the most critical content for you to develop? And I think that that's, that's truly where essentialism comes into play is it's setting aside that time to think, to consciously choose. And if you Mm -hmm. don't have that time, it would be impossible to be an essentialist. You have Mm -hmm. to set aside the time. Yep. That's interesting. My tune in time article, which I'm actually doing a podcast. So, you know, each one of these are my favorite tips you know, for mind, body, and spirit. So mm-hmm. my spirit tip is tune-in time. And I've got a whole list of people and what they do for tune-in time. And it's mm-hmm. it ties into this because it's setting outside time to think, feel, align, you know, and, you know, Bill Gates takes a week every year or every quarter or, you know, different people do different things. So mm-hmm. I love what you said about set aside time. When you think about before you read this book and, and really took, I picked the right person to talk about this uh, with me. <laughs> I knew I did. I knew I, it, but I'm listening I to you. Yeah. I know. <laughs> I mean, how cool is that? I didn't know to this extent, but I knew that we clicked and I knew mm-hmm. um, that you were excited about this book, but I just, I'm so happy. But it's, when you think about thing for me. <laughs> Isn't that great? I love that. So when you think about before and you think about today, mm-hmm. what would you say your satisfaction scale is or your, I like, you know, since we talk about wake up eager, my level of days where I'm waking mm-hmm. up eager then compared to now, now that you've applied this into your life, you could do a scale of, you know, zero to a hundred in regard to how oh, you wow. at your days. What would you say before how you might have felt and maybe now? I don't know if that's too subjective. It doesn't have to be perfect. But just dialogue in no, those it's, terms. No, it's a good, yeah. No, it's a good question, Susie, because I think that it's a complicated one. I've actually thought about it a lot because before, as a non-essentialist, I prided myself on my busyness which is easy to do um, because it means you're in demand. It has all of these value statements associated with it. But what it really does is it shackles you to productivity. And as someone who likes to do things, breaking off those shackles and moving into this essentialist view, which is inherently freedom-based and autonomy-based, I thought I was happy as a non-essentialist. I thought I was productive. I thought I was fulfilled because I was doing But then, so as far as zero to 100, I think at the time I thought I was like an 80. But in reality, I think I was at a 30. Oh my goodness, that is great. Yeah. Yeah. And as an essentialist, I know now to my core, I am operating at at least a 90 to 95 
every single day. And that is because I have that sense of ultimate autonomy, total freedom, utter clarity, all of these things that we think we have when we are busy and productive because we know what we're doing. But the essentialist view demands that you know who you are, not just what you're doing. And Mm -hmm. so that would be sort of my response to the gradation is I thought I was good before. And that's a non-essentialist thing is like, you know, it's all important. I'm reacting to what's most pressing. I say, yes, I'm busy, all of those things. And you don't always recognize that that is not feeding your purpose as much as actually being an essentialist. So Mm -hmm. I think that answered the question. Yep. I think that's the what about you? with this book. Yes. Yeah, so I would say, you know, I'd say I'm very deliberate. I've been deliberate for a long time in regard to a lot of things. Uh, so that is that has helped me. Mm-hmm. I could get control of my day more. But, you know, I would say every day I'm, I'm with you in the regard to the 90 to 95. Yeah, I feel on track in regard to my life overall. My work, mm-hmm. I need to still need to winnow down some things. But, you know, spending time with the people I want to spend time with, prioritizing family. And I have these little statements that I, I, I read almost every day that's about, you know, how important my husband is and how much, how important we are as a couple and how important family mm-hmm. is. And mm-hmm. then, you know, um, that we, and, and that we both are very focused on supporting each other's mission. So we don't need to be together around our mission, but we need to be fully supportive of whatever mm-hmm. interests the other. So all of that feels very deliberate. I don't have much. I can't think of anything in my life personally. Um, there's a couple of things that probably need to be cleaned up in regard to past stuff with people, but very limited mm-hmm. there. My goal is to kind of close all that out. So that all feels kind of essential and complete. And now I'm getting my work back caught up with that because I do like so much of what I do. I don't mm-hmm. pride myself on busyness and I do put happiness first. So I'm rambling as I'm answering this, but I do put my, you know, how do I feel? Do I feel Mm -hmm. on track? And I I make a lot of my decisions based on that. You know, does this feel on track? I think after having read the book, I was already kind of there maybe a little bit, but then I read the book. I'm like, oh my gosh, there's so much more I need to be doing, (laughs) you know? And so I've deleted work, you know, that I have since I've read the book last January. Um, Mm -hmm. I've deleted work that I don't do anymore. There's more coming. You're helping me with my website in regard to taking <laughs> things that aren't things. I've added people that I can uh, to my business that I can say, here, you do this part. I still like that part and can talk about that part, but I'm not going to do it anymore. Mm-hmm. I joined, I said yes to the Hartman Institute board. That was new. They mm-hmm. had asked me before. But until I decided that my one thing is this whole science of axiology and the trimetrics, and that is mm-hmm. what I get most excited about. That's my highest level of contribution. It makes my heart sing mm-hmm. to do it and talk about it. So I've joined the board and I'm, I'm enjoying every minute of that. So that feels really good. So that mm-hmm. uh, ties to my essential. I've said a lot of more no's to social invites but I can mm-hmm. do better there because I am pretty social <laughs> and I love people and I love all these people I have a past with, but I've got to kind of button that mm-hmm. down a bit if I'm going to do some of the other things I need to do. So that would be my biggest challenge in regard to that, but so better. Well, and better. I think you just hit on something interesting with the social side of this, because I think this is something Greg doesn't go into as much, but this principle applies so well to the people you surround yourself with. I mean, you know, every personal development fiend like us, we know 
this concept of, you know, you are the top five people you spend the most time with. But if you really think about that, Greg mentions this in the book, he says that essentialists have to accept that they cannot be popular with everyone all the time. And that's Mm. something that is really, as people who like people like us, it's hard because, you, you know, it's not that I don't like you. It's not that I don't value you. It's just that I am choosing me. And sometimes that means I'm not around with you. And that can be a really socially, I would be interested to see, you know, what Greg says about that, because it's an interesting dynamic to essentialize your social life, if that's a thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Have you been able no. to do it? Have you yes, been doing probably it? not as gracefully as I should have. <laughs> I took this book very seriously the first time I read it. Um, and probably painfully so to my friends and family around me. But I truly believe the value is there. I just think, you know, and he talks about graceful ways to say no and to, to, to articulate yourself there. But I mean, really, it comes down to the fact that sometimes you just have to say no. And by not saying anything, that's still a choice, too. So there's a lot, there's a lot within that concept of, you know, social um, and what feeds you, I think, too, because, you know, the fact that, you know, you love people and, you know, I could tell and just hear how much you love your family. And that's the same for me. And so it's just interesting to see. It's like, okay, well, if I have, if I'm saying yes to my family, that means that I'm probably going to have to say no to some people who want time from me that I can't give them while I'm being my highest and best self. And that, that can be, you know, challenging, especially as I feel like I'm a really generous spirit that's really hard for me because that means I have to say no or reschedule or postpone or schedule out months in advance just to have, you know, dinner with a friend. But that's the painful yet valuable part of being an essentialist in your social life too. Yeah, it's necessary. You know, is this my highest level of contribution? And and I think the only way that I can say no at times when I'm when I'm doing able to say no gracefully or sometimes like you said not so gracefully um, yeah. is when I have a stronger yes. So you know the having the clarity mm-hmm. what we started out with you know so knowing what your essential intent is like around my work and around mm-hmm. my personal life and knowing what that is if I have a strong enough yes I'll find a way to say the no when the yes gets a little muddy you know Mm. like here's here's a stupid place that's a challenge for me is clothes I like clothes Mm. oh I have a lot of clothes Mm -hmm. (laughs) I love outfits (laughs) I have a closet Mm -hmm. in my home in Marietta that's very large I have another closet in my home (laughs) in the mountains it's very large and I've got (laughs) And, you know, I mean, and it's like, holy moly, we need to essentially, and, you know, everything in there I like, and I do get rid of stuff, and I do go to the consignment store, but I I haven't put the brakes on that yet. So that's one, you know, where it's like, I don't have a strong enough, whatever the yes needs to be on that to say no to all the Mm -hmm. stuff. You know, and some of that is as a kid, I didn't have many clothes. So I'm I'm compensating, you know, because it feels good that I can, you Mm -hmm. know, but what do you think? Well, I, I just think I also grapple with this because I love fashion. I love clothes. I love, I love that. I love the textures of them. I love the colors. I love the, I love the shape. I love everything about it. I've always had, you know, four years <laughs> yeah. old flipping through Vogue, you know, so yeah, like, being oh, it's an so cute. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yes. It's very difficult to balance that. But I think this goes back amazingly, Susie, to what Greg talks about in the book. And I just pulled up the quote. 
he, he talks about basically, you know, if you're not prioritizing your life, someone else will, you know, that whole concept. And this is he, when he talks about the closet, do you remember this from the book? Yes. He talked about it in the opening. Yes. 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 He he says, imagine if every time you open the doors to your closet, you found that people had been shoving their clothes in there. If every day you cleaned it out in the morning and then by the afternoon found it already stuffed to the brim. And that is so funny because it totally, for me, the first time I read that, I was like, that's my closet. That's it. Yeah, that was before I had essentialized it. And then, you know, it becomes when you think of the closet as your life and then you think about your closet and there's always ways to cut, to edit, yes, um, yes. To, to live by design, not by default. And so I think, you know, I love that Greg does have this as a verb and a process because it's not something we're ever going to like, I'm probably going to get the shoes if I like the shoes and that may, that might not fit with my essentialist intent. But dang, if it puts me at a 92 instead of a 91 waking up eager. I'm, I'm good. Do I can do it. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. yes. So, yes. you know, it's, everything's it's a trade-off, like balance. he mentioned. Yeah, um, yeah. But, yeah. It's yeah, I stuff. definitely need to simple. And, you know, I have this great clothing consultant who reaches out to me and says, oh, Susie, you need this. And, you, and I like her. And she's lots of fun. And we laugh. And then the next thing uh-huh. you know. Because I go, I go see her or I get on a call with her without my intent really clear and I get all caught up and, ooh, that's cute. Oh, yeah, that's cute. And so she ships all that stuff to me, you know. And so really, there's a great example. And he uses it in the book as a way to say, you know, symbolize our lives. You know, for me, it's actually mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, my closet so anyway that's so how I, I read it too the first time so. yeah it's so, like oh it's that's okay. very literal in my life but it really yeah. is about yeah. you know like if we don't prioritize people will come in it's kind of like my wonderful clothing consultant you know she's coming in and she's literally stuffing new clothes in into mm-hmm. my closet um and I'm letting her but in his verbiage too it's about you know we let people do that with our lives uh, so it's yep. so interesting. So anyway, to me, that makes well, sense. Well, and I think like, within okay, that, too, get on that well, no, that's a perfect example because that is the perfect example of you as in that moment, she is not your priority, but you are hers. And so being consciously <laughs> aware, yeah, hey, no, it. I'm serious, being consciously aware it. of when others make you a priority and how that affects your own priorities. Yes. is a really interesting dynamic because once you move into this essentialist mindset, you can start to pinpoint, okay, this person is making me their priority or I am key to their priority. And there is part of, I think that he doesn't talk about this in the book to, to my memory, but there's part of that, that it's that awareness requires a level of grace and compassion to those people. Because if you know that you can be a kingpin for someone else's achievement of their priority, and that's not in your, you know, essential intent. How do you navigate saying yes or no? But you, you know, there's a lot within that that mm-hmm. I think should be unpacked, but it also should just be thought through on an individual level. And because it's really easy to pinpoint when you're the kingpin for someone else's priority. Uh, once you get clear on your own. I love the languaging because that does happen. Like, so when people personally want mm-hmm. you to do things or even in the work, mm-hmm. they want you to do this and, and it's like, well, I don't really want to do that. So you're the kingpin to their priority. Mm-hmm. And that is a tricky thing. And and he mm-hmm. talks about that in that uh, interview with Tim Ferriss. And I'm, I'm sure he does it in the book too, but is about, this is a problem. Essentialism is a problem usually for successful people. So they're already having oh, success gosh, and yeah. now they've got so many options 
And so then it becomes even more important. And so I'm not saying I'm so successful or that we're so successful, but we do have lots of options, you know, and we, I think everybody listening to this call does, you know, so all of our listeners have lots of options. So this is where this comes into play is when you have lots of options. So I can buy a lot Mm -hmm. of clothes and I can, and it's felt really good. In some ways it's really fed a desire for me, mm-hmm. but now it's, it's time to clean it up. <laughs> you know, and I'm mm-hmm. saying it now to the well, world, yeah. you know? So. Well, and then you think about Susie too, getting dressed, right? The choices that you have, the, the decisions you have to make already, is that an essential decision? Is choosing what you're wearing every day, an essential decision that should take time and energy and brain power. So those things are interesting too. I mean, I like choosing my clothes, so I'm not the best example of not, I'm not Steve Jobs. I'm not just wearing black turtlenecks. You know what I mean? Me neither. I'm not doing that. Yeah. Yeah. But at that same time, there was a reason why it saved him time and decision-making energy. And Greg talks about this in the book. He says that the preponderance of choice has overwhelmed our ability to manage it. And that is insane when you think about it, because we struggle daily to manage our ability to choose. I mean, the amount of choices we make from picking up our phone when a notification goes off to opening or shutting a door to what's on your desk to all of these decisions. And there's so much choice that our decision making, he mentions this too, the quality of our decisions deteriorate the more choices we have to make. So what decisions can you eliminate from your life every day? And I think that that's another difficult for me kind of things, but you know, it's mm-hmm. a trade-off. Like he, you know, he mentions trade-offs in the book, but as an essentialist, you do, you sacrifice what is familiar, perhaps what is even easy for this exhilarating unknown of having uncompromised focus. And I think that's, that's challenging, but it's a worthy pursuit. Awesome. So would you say we talk, we're talking a little bit about challenges, which was the next thing we were going to talk about. What else would you say is challenging? So I talked a little bit about the, you know, other person's priority and my clothing, <laughs> which is a serious one. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, the, and you mentioned a little bit of the, you know, personal piece, but it sounds like you've mm-hmm. managed that because you've been doing it for a while. Anything else mm-hmm. that has been particularly challenging in, when implementing this into your life or does that cover it? You know, that, that covers it for the most part, but I think one thing, you know, like I said, it's been a couple of years of me adopting and working with this essentialist attitude or this essentialist focus on my life. But one of the things that now, as I've been living in this freedom that comes from essentialism, I'm recognizing that my enthusiasm and my excitement towards ideas and things can sometimes, I mentioned this earlier, can sometimes overwhelm my ability to stay essentialist. So for me, my best essentialism moments are when I'm very, you know, I've had my tune in time. I'm really clear with myself. I'm very present with myself. But when I get excited and rolling with some ideas or with, you know, other people, I can lose track of my own intent because of my enthusiasm. So right now, my biggest struggle is how do I maintain my enthusiasm, yet not sacrifice or do an unconscious trade-off of my essentialist intent. And it's challenging. I don't know that I have a solution for it. That's something that's just come to mind, you know, in the past couple months or so. So it's a little different, a little new. 
Yeah, that makes it. So let me see if I understand it. So you're working on something. You have your intent mm-hmm. of where you're going to, you know, you know what your business intent is and how you want to spend your time. Mm-hmm. But then you get involved in something and you get so excited or enthused around it. You veer off a little bit or you commit to things yep. that you wouldn't yeah. have. Is that what's happening? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I just forget how it fits in. I, I don't consciously recognize how it fits in because I'm just so excited about it. Um, And so that for me is my own work and practice and my active choosing my choices within the day. So at times do you say, well, that's okay. Or has it been every time that you've done that you thought that's not okay. I should, I need to course correct. Has it sometimes led to good things or? Absolutely. I mean, I think, and that's what I mentioned, I think early on when we started our chat today, because it's sometimes where it's like, you just have to go for it in order to determine if it was essentialist or not. So it's like a hindsight 2020 thing is, was this essential for me? Well, sometimes you can't really know until you've actually done the thing. And so, yes, I think always I view everything that I've ever done as a learning experience and telling me more about who I am. I think there's always things to learn. There's always things to, to know. And so I don't regret them but it, it helps me clarify, I guess, clarify mm. my essential intent and clarify, yeah. you know, if I get that feeling in the future that was associated with this thing that was not so essentialist and I recognize this feeling, it helps me understand a pattern of behavior that in the future I can say, okay, that's how you felt when. So, and when led to non-essentialism. So it helps me to, to pinpoint my nose, really, me saying yes. no. It helps me pinpoint how to say no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah. Or yeah. catch it, catch it before it takes you down a track. Exactly. Really, exactly. You know, it doesn't. It isn't your highest level of contribution to do that mm-hmm. or to go that way. And I think it's interesting what you're saying too about enthusiasm. So your style. You know, when I think about the assessments. It's you know our greatest strength becomes our blind spot, mm-hmm. and so it it, it mm-hmm. is the same for essentialism. I'm a I'm a yes person. I mean, I'm a like. Oh, sure. Yes. You know, I'm pure like, I'm like, oh, sure, we could do that. You know, that would be my unfiltered uh-huh. Susie, you know, but my essentialist Susie needs to say, well, yes, if it matches my objective. So, I mean, I would think that all of us have, you know, our own blind spots based on just our mm-hmm. natural strengths or str- your strengths are, I mean, I met you first time I met you, you're super friendly, you're super uh, enthusiastic, optimistic. And so, I mean, all of that is your greatest strength. So it's so interesting, mm-hmm. you know, one of many of your greatest strengths. So all of us have that. So knowing, you know, if everybody thinks about what their strengths are by their motivators or their assessment, mm-hmm. by their communication style, or even their strengths under the hood, you know, how we think and make decisions with the, with the Hartman science, mm-hmm. you know, those things are things we lean into because they come naturally to us, but it's also the things that'll have us tiptoe out of our essential world sometimes <laughs> because yep, we're so absolutely. good at it. It's so natural. Well, yeah. I think, you know, it, it's interesting because when thinking about your blind spots, this goes exactly back to what Greg says in the book, where he talks about the overwhelming reality is that we live in a world where almost everything is worthless and very few things are exceptionally valuable. And that is a, you kind of bristle at that statement a little bit because is everything really worthless? But you think about it and it's what is worthy to your essential intent. And the reality is not a lot. It's really focused. Once you get clear with yourself and your intent, not a lot fits in to uncompromisingly chasing after that intent. And, you know, it's just really revealing about where 
you know, you've been unconsciously holding up these trivial many as pillars or stress points in your life instead of just letting them go and focusing on those vital few. And that's, again, where I think our blind spots come in is sometimes you don't know what you need to be letting go. And the only exercise is to just keep at it, to keep identifying, to keep working toward how you can give your highest contribution, your highest self. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, for me, one of the things um, like a tool that I use, because that's kind of our next thing we're going to talk about, is it ties into what you just said is it's going to sound woo woo, but it is somewhere along the line before I read the book. Uh, essentialism, but I, I started to embrace the idea that feeling good and feeling satisfied and feeling ease, you know, because I'm mm. so bought into the wake up bigger, that that mattered. And so I was going to prioritize mm-hmm. that. So I wasn't, I didn't mm-hmm. have the language to synthesize, you know, what, what my highest level of contribution is, but I was being guided to it by being committed to, well, this doesn't feel right. And I have pretty decent intuition. So that was working for me. And it's like, something doesn't feel right, or this makes me stressed out, or this isn't my thing to do. And so that can be informing is this idea mm-hmm. of paying attention to how it feels, you know, because good feels mm-hmm. good. So if we prioritize yep. ease and happy and having a happy day, what you're describing is, you know, you're finding that by being very clear about your intent, you know, feeling mm-hmm. on purpose. And as opposed to thinking everything has value and priority, you know, the specific things do. And I think there's a lot of, of satisfaction anytime we choose. I think satisfaction mm-hmm. and choice and happiness all go together. But I don't think we always yep. know the string and he's tied it together in this book. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think he touches on how choice is really that, you know, it's that critical element of essentialism. And it's just something that even when we don't think we're choosing, we're actually making a choice not to choose. And so every single thing that we're doing is an action associated with this stuff. And it's just, I don't know. It's uh, it's challenging. I think it, it really is because you have to apply that set of essentialist criteria of, you know, what you were just saying of what makes you feel good, satisfied, ease. Those are your criteria for the choices that you make. And it's, you know, like he mentions, and I said earlier, just eliminate the whole universe of other options when you really get clear on what you yeah. want um, from yourself. So think about, share some of the tools that you use. We've talked a little bit about them and maybe there's some additional ones. I have a few that I'm going to share too, but do you have any tools or, or resource, additional resources or questions that you ask that would be relevant to, you know, to help people who are struggling either within their work with you or maybe after this conversation, you get some more questions from people. What are some things that you would share or point to? Man, that is, that's a tough, that's a tough question because what I do is so hands-on and so high touch and so conversation-based that I think the biggest tool you have, whether as a, you know, individual listening to this podcast or as someone running a team or running a brand or running a business is the time set aside to verbalize or articulate your thoughts. And I think that this is at the crux and the core of the essentialist um, purpose is to have time to think about these things. But most often, every client that comes to me, they think they know what they want. And then through a series of strategy and conversation and just asking a lot of questions, 
we realize that maybe it's a, not exactly what they thought because they hadn't spent those 12 hours sitting in these questions and that time. And then usually on the other end of that, they have their essentialist intent. They have their core mission. They have exactly what their vision is for themselves and their business and their life. And so I think the the biggest tool is <laughs> tune in time, really, you know, however that looks yeah. like for you, whether it's by yourself thinking, saying present, journaling, um, or if you're with a strategist, having those conversations, asking the scary questions, verbalizing the big, you know, the goals. So yeah, that, I think time, we don't yes. spend time to think. And that's really what I think I bring to the table as the tool yes. is that time to think about it and to, to ask those questions. And so I don't know about tools, but it really depends on the personality and the industry but it's really just defining, verbalizing, articulating, and then sharing that essential intent that helps my clients the most. So in whatever way that looks like for you, you know, if you're listening to this and needing to define your essential intent, I would never recommend starting with a screen, always with a piece of paper and just writing it down and crossing it out if it doesn't feel good. I think within that, I've run a training um, that I was in I've got, I got this one exercise on a training and then I've since done it with different clients, but it's a values exercise. And, you know, it's been many people do this in many different ways, but to, you print out a list of values, you can do this sort of graduate with cards, uh, but you print out, you know, 150 different things that can be valued. And then you ask yourself or your team around you, you know, put on some relaxing music and you go through and you say yes and no to every single one. You say, no, I don't value that. Or yes, I value that. And then from your, you know, you put your no pile aside, you grab your yes pile. And then you say, okay, now I need to pick 30 of these. So 30 out of the remaining 70 is usually approximately what it is. So now you have to discard 40 more values. And then you do this again until you get all the way down to your top three values. And that can be a really, really challenging exercise. But the clarity that you can get from that to inform your essential intent is really beautiful. So you don't have to do it with cards. You know, you can just print out a list of values on a Word doc and just cross them off. There's a lot of ways that you can do this to really spend that hour with yourself to define your essential intent. And I just think it's time. That's the tool. That's the resource. That's the idea. Get time. (laughs) I love it. Yes, it is. This We think we don't have time to think, but we don't have time not to set aside time Mm -hmm. to think. And and for me, when I started finding, because I am Miss Urgent and I love to multitask, but when I started prioritizing feeling satisfied and at the end of the day, feeling good about my day, then I started setting aside the time. And so when I want to go for a walk, I do. And every time Mm -hmm. I do, I mean, I'm, I'm uber productive, but I'm telling you, it's only because I take the time and Mm -hmm. that is, well, and get bored. I feel like that's a thing. Get bored. Get bored. Yeah. One of, one of my mentors told me that a while back, she said, you need to get bored. And I was like, what are you? No, like, no, just, I was rejecting that outright. But when you think about it, if you get with yourself where you're not, you're not having a task to do, if you get bored, your body and your mind will surface to you things that have been boiling in the back that you did not know about. And Mm. so getting bored. And I grew up with a saying, you know, my mom and dad, they always said only boring people get bored because they wanted us to go entertain ourselves as kids, right? So I took that into adulthood. But now I think getting bored is one of the most creative things we can do. 
I really do. Yep, yep, yep. Let the mind, let, let, I mean, because I do believe our inner self is talking to us all the time and guiding Mm -hmm. us, whatever you want to name that. But Mm -hmm. we are getting guidance all the time. And if we are never Mm -hmm. quiet and we never, that's why the tune in time, you know, is so Mm -hmm. important. Or, and it could be a day, it could be, uh, I, I love your values exercise. Anything where we stop and we think about the big picture or we just stop and let things come to us. It's the muse. You hear people talk about the muse, you know, that's mm-hmm. powerful, powerful, powerful. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting. Tune in time. This is something I talk about all the time. Tune in time. If you just did 15 minutes a day, that's 1% of your day. And at the end of the year, that's almost 92 hours. Amazing. Of quiet time. It's amazing. That something? Yes. Yeah. That's incredible. Because I mean, yeah. what else would you be doing with those 92 hours? That's the question for me. You know, it's like, if I wasn't doing tune-in time, where would those 92 hours be spent? Would those be on essentialist things or non-essentialist things? And that's wonderful to see the compounding effect of yes. taking time for yourself. Yes. And he talks about it in the book in regard, or he maybe just did it on the Tim Ferriss podcast. I can't recall, but, you know, taking a day or, you know, doing the retreats mm-hmm. and they have a whole discussion on that podcast too. So quickly, I'll mention this and then we'll get into the rest of what we're going to talk about today. But here are some of the tools that I share and I'll put links of these. Uh, my daily planning, I do a list of six. I mean, I've got articles on this and I've talked about it and I did podcasts around it. It's like list of six. These are the six things I absolutely will do today. You do better on mm-hmm. having that list of six. And I do that every day. Um, I won't allow myself to put more than six. I might get more than six yeah. done, but there are six things that absolutely have to be done. My thing was to get clear on, you know, my biggest contribution, big picture, but daily not wasting time and knowing what has to be done. It keeps the overwhelm. A tune in time is one revisiting all of his questions, you know, in his book. To mm-hmm. me, the fitness thing is big. Uh, sitting down and you probably do this reviewing uh, at the end of the year. You know, what, what did I like about oh, where your time was spent? Where was my yeah. time spent? What do I feel good about? Mm-hmm. What have I accomplished? Going back and just revisiting how much you've accomplished. We forget how much we've accomplished. Um, yeah. And I think that's always a surprise for myself. And I make my husband listen to me share it since I'm you know, an independent and I don't really want to burden the people I partner <laughs> with. You know, I'll be like, honey, here's a list of all the things that I accomplished this year. He's like, okay. He listens. He's yeah. like, I know I was there. <laughs> Are you done yet? Uh, no, he listens. He teases. And then there's an exercise that I do, a coaching exercise, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Uh, it's 80-20 rule, you know, that we need to spend 80% of our time on the 20% that matters the most, which is almost mm-hmm. essentialism, but not quite, but there's a good exercise. Well, and I'm- he has a different one in the book, the 80-20. He has 20% of our efforts produce 80% of our results. So I think that yes. rule goes to so many things. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. And and if I'm on the phone with somebody and they're overwhelmed, sometimes I have a whole little exercise that I'll go through that has, okay, let's lay all your projects out, you know, and just in the moment to try to help them clarify mm-hmm. what's important, what can you delegate, you know, what has to happen right now. Yeah. So those are all. Yeah. It all comes back to time and, and, and an intense control over and not control in, you know, a clenched fist, but an intense analysis and intentionality with your time, those 92 hours, those 15 minutes, all of it, having that, you know, on the call, having that time. It's the one resource that's finite and we can't get more of. 
So you have right. to use what you have better. <laughs> yes. And then in the moment, just knowing to me what it, the minute, so since I told you, I always focus on how I'm feeling. The minute I start to feel a little panic or I start to mm. feel uh, stressed or a little angry or tense because I do have strong feelings, I stop. And I'm like, okay, go back, mm-hmm. go take a walk, go get quiet, go write, go prioritize. Mm-hmm. Because what I'm thinking, mm-hmm. I think what I end up thinking is everything's important. So I got to get all this stuff done. It's like, no, stop and think what's most important right now. Yeah, absolutely. That, that helps tremendously. So mm-hmm. wonderful discussion about essentialism. Let's carry that over into talking a little bit about you and your career. I think you're brilliant at what you do. And I, I'm just excited to see where the rest of your career is going to go since you have a bright future ahead of you. But talk a little bit about who's most influenced you in your, in your career so far I and mean, some of the things they said or did that matter to you. That again, it's like boiling down essentialism to three things. Who has most influence? I mean, what does most look like? It's impossible. I am just, I, am, I don't know <laughs> if it's so much a who as it is a how, I guess. Is this, oh, okay, is this good. so challenging? Because I've always been such an avid reader and researcher and just a consumer of information. And through that process, and I know you, you know, you've done this as well, but you adopt these mentors that have absolutely no idea you exist. But, you know, you know, they're your mentor and you think, you know, like I've had conversations with them. They don't know who I am. So I think, you know, it's who has most influenced me in my life and career. It's just been so many countless people over the years. I've, I've been so blessed to have incredible professors that have become mentors and have become friends. And so I think starting from, you know, education and my master's program, which I have a master's degree in strategic communication from Westminster College in Salt Lake City. And that program and the professors and the coaching and the mentoring, all of that, I think, drastically influences my life and career to date, even though I'm not in that program anymore. And then, of course, I've got people like Michael Beirut, who's a partner at a design firm called Pentagram, and David Airy, who's an Irish identity designer, and Phil Knight, the founder of Nike, and Donald Miller, the author and founder of StoryBrand, and then Chris Doe, the founder of The Future. I mean, I could list for days these people (laughs) who I've had conversations with, and they have no idea. So I don't know, again, if it's so much as a who is a how, and it's it's a how of how they are, what they do. And I watch that and I'm so curious about it. And I'm so intent on adopting the good from it to incorporate my own life. And of course, you know, my parents who are both entrepreneurs themselves, and then my many clients who have taught me about their industries and their experiences and the countries that they're from or the states that they're from, who is almost everybody, but conglomerated into a how. And so I think what it comes down to is that all of these people, what they do say and share sort of ends up being three main principles. And that's, I guess, the who is everyone who does these principles, if that makes sense. But these principles being a commitment to excellence in all things, an insatiable curiosity, and an undeniable work ethic. And Mm. every one of my real mentors, my book mentors, my mentors who have no idea I exist, my parents, my clients, they all have these main principles, which are principles I admire on such a fundamental value level. And so I think, I guess it's everyone that I've encountered that has these principles that have led me to adopt these in my own life. And that's, I guess, what they say and share that was most useful to me. And it's just really those three things. 
But I mean, I could look at my, you know, I'm in my office right now. I could look over my bookshelf and probably name 40 people just off of, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe, you know, Greg, Greg McEwen would be in it. It's yeah. just everybody. So he's probably up at the top. So one of the things you yeah. talk about when you describe yourself in your bio, and it's something that I believe is very important. So it stood out to me and you do not always see it in other consultants. You see the uh, talking about it, but not the actually living of it. And I've experienced oh, what, that what's in there. This, oh, geez. And it, you live it. I see you live it and how you communicate it. And I'm sensitive to it because I value it a lot. And I'm always trying to be really excellent at it. And I'm not always excellent at it, but it's seeking to understand before trying mm. to be understood. Who modeled that for you the most? Wow, that is a really deep question because this was the first personal development phrase I ever adopted in my whole life. So back when I was probably like 12 or 13 years old, I think my mom introduced me to it because it's, it's a butchered version of a Deepak Chopra quote, if I'm, if I recall correctly, it might also have been adopted by Stephen Covey. It was in uh, Stephen Covey's highly, book for yeah. sure. Yeah. But to yeah, me, it's so, so I mean, it's, important as a consultant is to try to understand people or as a human, you know, to just try yeah. to understand where people are. And we all say it, but we don't all live it. And we don't, as a consultant, I'm particularly a sensitive if I'm working with other consultants to help me. And when they're not good at mm. it, I don't like it. <laughs> yeah. mm. But you're yeah. good at it. It's so hard. I'm curious. It's I'm curious. Yeah. I mean, yes. I don't know. I feel like my parents, you know, I can't speak highly enough about them, but they, they really modeled this uh, for me and uh, my brothers growing up. And even, you know, ironically, the way they disciplined us, this is kind of a funny side note, but they, our discipline, uh, if we were to get into trouble, was to write an essay. Um, <laughs> my, my dad was to write an essay. He would, he would make us write an essay about whatever it was. I mean, whether it was, we had, you know, mouthed off about something that was incorrect and he'd make <laughs> us go research it and, you know, you know, whatever it was, or, you know, if we would get in trouble, my mom would make us write letters to ourselves, to our parents, and then um, to sort of the universe and uh, apologize or get right with yourself. And so for me, I guess the way they modeled that, I don't even know if intentionally, I'll have to ask him, but intentionally yeah. they always sought for us to understand ourselves within trying to explain who we were. So I think the seeking understanding before trying to state something, I think that's just ingrained in how I personally process the world. And then I also think it's just really beneficial in treating humans. Just like you said, this is a very human thing. And to really seek, I don't know, to understand, I don't know, I guess that, that just goes back honestly to those three principles of having that insatiable curiosity. And that doesn't need to be insatiable curiosity for yourself. It can be an insatiable curiosity about your client about your coworker. It's honestly, curiosity, I feel, is the best medicine for a negative emotion. That's why that's so important for me. And so that's where that seeking understanding comes into play. Yeah. Yeah. I find I don't even, I don't like to ask for help from others until I know that they are these kind of people. The thinking mm -hmm. to understand. And it's just... I don't know. So that's awesome. And I love that you adopted that at 12 years old. And I love that you had to write <laughs> essays when you got in trouble. <laughs> How perfect is that? Of course, yeah, you're going to end up doing what for, you do. Yeah. yeah. I could never run for like political office or anything because my parents have got these essays stacked somewhere in the basement <laughs> or something. And who knows what they say? I don't even remember what they say. So, yeah, it was, it's a good disciplinary that. technique for all you parents uh, out there. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So for me, I'll share. So my mother was very influential on two sides. 
One, mm. the positive side was uh, she's very creative. She's a free thinker. I mean, I mean, they were reading Jonathan Livingston Seagull and she was doing health food and it read the East West mm. Journal when nobody else was doing that. You know, and she's a positive, expresses positivism and optimism and mm. learning and an encourager, very creative. And then on the other side, I mean, she's the whole reason I care so much about Wake Up Eager because she was so talented and so beautiful, but she never saw it, you know, for herself. She's mm. with us today and she has has more confidence. And I've talked about it before, but she she as it when I was growing up, she never just saw her beauty. You know, she never saw her mm goodness and and she struggled you know to be happy and to feel good and I, I as, a, as the youngest I was always trying to help her you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know mm-hmm. make a cake so she'd be happy you know and so she, she just struggled mm-hmm. and she did her own things and it's better today you know as she's an eight going to be 80 this year but I just remember just wanting her to see you know, I wanted her to wake up eager. I wanted her to see her value. So, so she gave me so much. And, and so to me, the wake up eager thing, you know, she didn't for a very long time and a lot of life passed by, you know, and so mm-hmm. to me, it's so personal, this whole thing, you know, is helping people get to where they want to go is that, you know, and I don't try to turn mm-hmm. anybody. I don't, I've healed a lot of that, you know, in regard to it, but, I, and I don't try to take people places or anything, but I do want to put it out there. And so, you know, when I have information that's helpful, it really makes my heart sing. And I think that that's my highest level of contribution. And I think I made mm. that decision a long time ago, you know, and it, it's made me very determined. So while she gave me all these gifts positive, it also made me very determined that I'm going to craft a life that works, that is happy and good and not that's that her beautiful. You know, but yeah, so interesting. So I think it's made me so determined, you know, Mm -hmm. so a great influence. That's beautiful, Susie. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, thank you. It's wonderful to go celebrate. We're going actually next weekend to go celebrate my mom and my dad's 80th birthday. Oh my gosh. Wonderful. To, yeah, see her. And actually, it's funny, you know, in the past couple of years, my dad's kind of uh, losing his memory. And so she's now stepped up to the plate and she's actually the most focused that I've ever seen her and the most uh, determined. So it's mm. interesting, you know, how life unfolds. <laughs> so it's, it's yeah. all good. So you said you had a ton of books and education and you shared, we've talked about essentialism, pick your top couple uh, in regard to, if you could only share a couple of books, what else besides essentialism would you suggest? And we have people listening that have their own businesses, we have consultants, we have leaders, you know, in that vein and in the work you do, what's your favorites? What are the books you want to give away or give to people most? These are the hardest questions. How am I supposed to pick favorites when I consume everything? <laughs> it's like picking it's your favorite so children. It's like picking your favorite like, children. <laughs> They're all yeah, my children. I can't do that. It's like I don't. I don't know. Um, Ooh, yes, you can. Uh, this is so difficult. I don't know. So it, again, it's really super hard to distill down because I think you know I've watched you know while we're talking about moms, my mom as an entrepreneur, she has run for the past twenty or so years. Uh, mastermind book club. And so oh, cool. I have, yeah, so I have over the years been, okay, what are you reading? I'll go, you know, I'll, you have get that books. I'll read that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I've just been raised. I mean, both my parents have their libraries. I mean, it's just like reading is such a huge thing. So it's so hard to distill down, but I think 
the biggest one most recently that I can think about, and maybe we'll bring in a little bit of the assessment uh, information here because I am a very, very high D on the DISC profile. So that can mean a lot of really challenging interactions. And I'm sure you could speak to it much better than I can, what the archetypes of that sort of personality can be. But I read uh, by recommendation of another mentor, a real one, not a book one, a real mentor of mine. She recommended The Culture Code by Daniel Coyle. And it was this absolute huge mindset shift for me taking me out of just productivity and bringing in the human element of this. So it was absolutely huge when I first read it. And in the book, he talks about this concept, you know, what builds exceptional teams. And he talks about belonging cues. And I'll let you read the book so you can understand, but it really transformed my interpersonal communication to balance. I'm, I'm a high D, but I'm surrounded by super high eyes everywhere I go. I'm just surrounded by high eyes. And so it really <laughs> helped me transform my interpersonal communication with them and to engage, again, that curiosity that for me is the perfect antidote to a negative emotion. Um, mm. So yeah, I couldn't recommend that one enough. The Culture Code by Daniel Coyle is also the author of The Talent Code. Um, but again, that was a book that for six years, he was going around and interviewing, and I think it was six years, and he was just interviewing and asking questions. And it was from his consulting experience that it came out. And it was an absolutely amazing trend of how to build high-performing teams and how to engage with a high-performing team. It was just absolutely wonderful. And then the other one, since I'm only picking two because you are driving they're driving like your home. children Gotta, they're like your yeah, children it's so hard so to pick. hard <laughs> don't know how i'm supposed to do this but um the compound effect by darren hardy oh um, yes and this yes you know it yep yes it need not be you know anything need more not be said like it's just it's step-by-step system to really like hone in i think reading you know if i, if I were to prescribe a set of books i would say read essentialism Get real clear on your essential intent. Read the culture code so you can see the team and the people around you. And then read the compound effect to put that all into practice. And Ooh, that would be my I like three. It. If I were giving if I were giving three to anyone, I might stick in Atomic Habits by James Clear in there too, maybe. But so I would just give those three. <laughs> Three plus one. Um, yes. Yeah. Three plus it's optional reading. So those yes. would be those would be my those would be my one. That's a very hard question. So I'm gonna throw it right back at you. Which ones you get? Oh, I love it. I love the instrumental. I love the formula though. So I think that's really smart. The essential intent. You know, read that first. Mm-hmm. The culture code compound. In fact, well, by the way, we'll have all of these on the show notes, and then Atomic Habits will have links to all of this. So that's mm-hmm. awesome. Beautiful. So. My favorites, and I do have books everywhere as well, but my favorite, and it always has a special place in my heart because I think it fell off the shelf. You know how that happens. It was in the mm-hmm. 1990s, and it was Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And I probably, oh, I have okay. probably read that book 80 times. I haven't read it mm-hmm. lately, mm-hmm. but just, uh, I just remember when I first read it, that it was like the, it was like the sun you know, shined, you know, it was like, it was mm-hmm. like, I was just new out of college. I was working at NCR corporation. And I was trying to figure out, I was in human resources and I was working with the general manager and the head of HR. And it was like all a swirl. And it's like, that book was like my anchor. 
There's mm-hmm. just so much good there. So timeless. It's um, you just can go back and revisit it. So that's powerful. One skill set that when I started my business, I knew I could be effective and I was getting good feedback, but I, I, you know, people would hire me. I think, Oh, I didn't handle that really well. And they'd still hire me back. So I was like, okay, I'm doing something mm-hmm right, you know, because I thought I'd kind of messed that up. But I knew I needed some processes. And so, uh, and I actually had him on my podcast, which was a great moment for me, because he's somebody I really respect, Michael Wilkinson, and he wrote a book called The Secrets of Facilitation. And that I carried around for probably the first five years of my business, and read it every second I had, and then applied it. And it's just facilitation techniques, um, mm. and he's got another book out now, but, uh, anyway, that secrets of facilitation by Michael Wilkinson, I would say that's another one that I felt like it was the same kind of thing where I was asking for insight and boom, there it was. And it was exactly what I needed. I mean, he's kind of distilled down what it is effective people do when they're in front of groups, like everything from how you kick off a meeting to um, when people disagree, how you help them make decisions. I mean, it's just really good. So Sounds amazing. I'm going gonna, I'm yeah. gonna to buy it. Yeah, it is awesome. And uh, his whole business and everything he does. It's episode number 60 in the podcast. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I'm like, you have so many other things. Um, I would say maybe two other things have probably impacted me the most. One is the assessments because of how much it's mm-hmm. taught me about myself. And then all every time I get to dialogue with someone about their results, um, I learn some other nuance or some other standing about myself or about other people. Uh, Hartman's work in the trimetrics part has been very important, understanding like how we think and make decisions. It's helped me be more compassionate person, um, helped me find more compassion and patience with my parents mm. and, you know, people where you can have some old patterns, <laughs> you know, like, well, why didn't they do that? And then once I understand, <laughs> you know, Hartman's, you know, the way, uh, at least the Hartman value profile part of the assessment, you know, helps me understand how we think and, and the lack of clarity we sometimes have and how that can impact our inability to be available or, you know, to be, so I'm so much more patient with friends and people. Cause I also have a very high D so no wonder we're mm-hmm. um, <laughs> in sync in my style. So that does the Harmon <laughs> would have been just, um, you know, maybe even the most for me, but then to be able to share it with people. So I guess I'll stop at that, but I'm like you, it's like your children's like, how do you, how do you pick? Yeah. Well, I was bringing it back to essentialism. He quotes, who does he quote in that book? Where Oh, it's, I don't know. It was, it's, it's an author, a famous author from skipping my mind right now, but kill your darlings, kill your darlings. Even when it breaks your egocentric little scribbler's heart, kill your darlings. And I think about that oh. all the time when you have to pick your, you have to pick your favorites. You have to edit your life. You've got to kill your darling. <laughs> oh, that is great. So you have really it's a fun one. You're really owning this book, man. It's just that is awesome. Kill your darlings. I it's do life changing. That. It's a life changing yes. book. Yeah. Yes, it is. It is life changing. So talk about um, since we do, we're coming toward the last couple of questions. Wake up eager here, and we just had this. This podcast is a result of last year where I did the Wake Up Eager Wednesday tips, and I did it around mind, body, spirit, doing a little bit different mm-hmm. focus this year in 2020. But my number one, you know, is the essentialism. So that's why we're doing this podcast. But talk about for you your mind, body, and spirit. What some of your things you do regularly to help you wake up eager? 
Yeah, it's interesting because they all go back to essentialism. I'm just realizing apparently everything in my life goes back to essentialism. You are um, an essentialism nerd in the best kind of way. I am. <laughs> I am. It's like it's like a kind of an odd little thing once you adopt it. It's just so so much a part of you. I don't. It's almost hard to separate what isn't that um, yes. because everything is. You know, if you're living it right, everything is part of your essential intent. So for me, I think it's so interesting to split it into mind, body, and spirit because those are so critical and for me my mind is I've got to take care of that that's if I were placing priority my mental clarity my brain functioning all of that stuff is so important for me and I think that's where your tune-in time which now I've adopted in my vernacular but doing that that tune-in time where after every meeting or conversation I just take a moment to speak in that information gather my thoughts and softly unlike this high productive non-essentialist priding myself on busyness that I was before, take this time to softly transition my mind to the next object or task or whatever that is. So that to me, that mental clarity, that tune in time, it's just, it's just critical. Okay. I'm going to stop you there for a second is softly transition my mind. I love that softly Mm -hmm. transition my mind. What great language. That is awesome. And for a high D, that's not, that doesn't come natural. (laughs) Oh no, it doesn't. It's a trained practice. And I think that mind, body, and spirit for me, because I'm such a high D and I spent so many years in that non-essentialist practice of being so busy and not necessarily treating my body, mind, spirit with the gentleness that it deserves. I think gentle and soft and all those things are deeply ingrained in my mind, body, and spirit wake up bigger practices because they have to be because they don't come naturally. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's super important for me. But uh, I think other in the mind area, I don't drink coffee anymore. I have forsaken that amount of caffeine because I was relying on it. Um, and now I drink uh, mud water, M-U-D-W-T-R. It's an adaptogenic drink. It's got reishi mushrooms, or reishi chai. It's got mushrooms, ashwagandha. It's kind of a weird little, it tastes like dirt. But that oh, me, cool. just helps me manage my stress. But adaptogenic drinks and supplements to really take care of not only my mind as in my mental clarity, but also my literal brain and its functioning. Um, so that kind of bleeds into body a little bit. Yeah, and then my only that. body one, I guess, I guess it's not only, but my biggest body one is, and you know, it goes back to essentialism, but it's sleep. You've got mm, to sleep. And Greg, yes. he talks about in the book that we have to protect the asset and we are the asset. So your body and your sleep and your exercise and your mind and what you, you know, your hydration, all of these things, you have to protect the asset. So that to me, whatever it takes to protect the asset is what I'm doing. But sleep for me is huge because it's when my body does what it does, it heals itself and it does the things I can't consciously make it do. And so that period, I will not sacrifice that for anything. <laughs> so sleep That's and hydration wonderful. are my body things. These are my critical yes. pillars have to happen. Love it. And then for spirit, this one's interesting because it's easy for me to just immediately think that my spirit portion is my spirituality. So, but in thinking about my spirit and my soul and what feeds it, I kind of do what you do. I guess my, I don't call it my tune in time, but it's my morning routines. Another book we're throwing out there while we're offering some tools is Miracle Morning. Um, And my morning routines to be present with myself in whatever way I sense that my spirit needs. So sometimes that's reading, sometimes it's walking, sometimes it's resting, sometimes it's, you know, 
coffee with my mom or, you know, doing some sort of interaction, whatever that means. I'm really listening into my spirit in the morning and what, what do I need? Because it's not always the same. And I'm, I'm a pattern time blocking kind of gal. And some, and it's just the one time I have to be flexible because what my body needs and what my spirit needs, it will tell me when I give it that time and that space. Mm. Uh, But so that's sort of, that's my spirit one. Uh, And then of course, you know, just cultivating a spirit of generosity in all things for all people to the best that I can. And that's really, that's what feeds my soul and um, expands my soul and my spirit. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. So back to real quick, you're not drinking coffee, but you're drinking mushrooms, adaptogenics. I've seen the four sigmatic. What's mud? How did you spell the mud water? I want to make sure we put a link to that. M-U-D-W-T-R. And it was one of those, I just felt victim to advertising. I was like, this advertising is really good. I should just try it. And then over time, I just completely got rid of coffee. I just don't, I don't drink it. And it's, it's a coffee alternative. It's got all organic ingredients um, for health and performance benefits. It's got one seventh the caffeine of coffee. So if you're sensitive to caffeine or you're trying to cut caffeine, it's a good substitute for it. But it's got like turmeric. It's got a bunch of mushroom types in it. It's got reishi. It's got masala chai. It's got cacao. It's got like all the things. And I put a little MCT oil and coconut oil um, in there for creamer. And it's just, I've got it right in front of me right now. Well, it's gone, but I've got the container for it in front of me. And that's, it's, it's just adaptogenic uh, sort of thing. just trying to biohack, I guess, if you will. Yes. Yes. I love everything that you shared and did want to mention here, we're talking about being a high D and we're talking about, uh, you were saying about, you know, being gentle and soft, the tendency for a high dominant style, the blind spot is, is that we can be, think everything is urgent. And so that we can, Mm -hmm. we can come across, we may feel kind and gentle inside, but we can come across if we don't manage our style as being abrupt or as being Mm -hmm. urgent or, you know, not, we don't often come across as gentle and soft unless we're aware of it. So we can look very driven. So anybody who's listening, I just want them to touch base on that because what everything you're talking about is showing you because this is the thing that bothers me when people learn their style and then say, well, that's just how I am. And what this shows and what you're demonstrating is that we can take our strength, still use the strength and then manage ourselves in a way to our own happy, you know, which is this, these Mm -hmm. words, softly transitioning, being more gentle, you know, all of those things that you're talking about. So we aren't, we aren't just our style. I mean, that's one piece of who we Mm -hmm. are. (laughs) So anyway. Well, exactly. And I think it just, that's perfect too, because I think these assessments that you do, they are so incredible and so revealing. And they're really for people who like to do this essentialist thing, have their essential intent and perform at their highest capacity that requires knowing yourself and it requires, you know, a little bit of extra, extra knowledge that you may think you have, but having that boost of these assessments is just absolutely critical. I think towards long-term sustainable growth um, as an individual. It could be helpful for sure. So mine real quickly, I'll say is uh, for mind, it's the tune in time. It's Mm -hmm. the commitment to ease happiness. You know, that wake up eager is the goal. And so when I, any moment that that starts slipping away, tune in time helps me understand or feel the higher energy by being quiet, doing some of what you talked about, listening and just let, and so when I slip out of the feeling better, I know because of the tune in time that I am not at my peak 
in feeling good. Mm -hmm. So it really guides me. And then the questions in essentialism over this past year, I've got a way to go to be as as strong and functional around it as you are, (laughs) which is admirable. (laughs) It's awesome. But having those questions in front of me is helping me. And even just having the dialogue today about it, it's like, okay, I'm going back and listening to the book again um, so that I stay clear on my intent. And I'm a lot of way there, but there's always work. You know, as I was listening to the book again, podcast again. I'm like, oh man, <laughs> I thought of so many things that I'm doing that aren't essential. So it's a That's why I read it every year. I, you have to, you got to read yeah. it every year. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so around body right now, what's top of mind is intermittent fasting. I'm, I'm just did an episode on that. That's part of the tips of this little series. I have Peloton. I'd like to work out, but right now my thing is the Peloton, which I enjoy completely. I like walking my dogs and I'm really big into uh, nutrition. And so one of the things that I'd like to have are green smoothies. So a lot of stuff mm-hmm. there, green smoothies, just chock it full of all kinds of nutrition. I've actually written articles about it and stuff because I like them so much. Spirit wise, I'd go back to TNT, tune in time, journaling. So anytime I get confused or unsettled, if I, I'll sit and write, and oftentimes what I write is just lists of appreciation. So I get off the topic and I just think about all the things I value and appreciate. And then once I kind of go back to the topic, it's like there's some clarity there that wasn't there before. And then the community is, you know, dinner with my husband every night. That's a commitment we made. When we first got married, we weren't quite doing that because we're both pretty busy people. He's an executive at a company. And we decided somewhere along the way, okay, every night we're going to do dinner. So we do dinner every night. I cook something. We sit down. We may or may not talk, but we, you know, depending Mm -hmm. on how tired we are, but we sit together and then always having date night somewhere. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So if you could give have a billboard anywhere, what would it be? What would it say? And you can put anything on it you want, any message that you want to give to the world. What would your message be? Okay. Okay. So it seems a little weird, but I would just want a solid billboard of some color. I don't know. I'd have to do some color psychology research to determine. And then <laughs> of course. simple font, you know, because I'm a brand yes. I'm a brand. Because you're brand special. Right? You know, yeah, you're a designer. Yeah. Yes, of course. Yeah. And I would just want simple text and I would just want it to say, this is your beginning. Ooh. And that's all. Because no matter where you are, how old you are, where you see it, when you're driving, this is your beginning. Every single moment is the beginning for you. Um, and I think it's the most freeing, the most liberating and the most exciting message I could give people. And that's what I would oh, want to say. I love what about that. you? What's on your, I love that. <laughs> I love it. Cause it is just the idea of, okay, I can begin again now, you know, and, mm-hmm. and so the past informed it. And so today's a new day. I mean, there's been songs, mm-hmm. the sun will come out tomorrow, you know, so, but I love yep. that. This yep, is this you is would pick beginning. the perfect color. I bet you would pick the perfect color. <laughs> Message of hope. Mine would be um, embrace happiness, create ease. Oh, I love it. So, you know, it's just this idea. Such a command. I love it. Embrace happiness, create ease. Because embrace means, okay, I'm going to let the happiness in. Because to me, happiness is trying to come at us in a million different angles. And sometimes we just decide not to let it in by, you know, thinking that we got to struggle or whatever. So I'm going to embrace it and that it's our choice. We can choose to create Mm. ease, which is why I got so excited when I did 
read essentialism. It's like, oh, he's showing us another way of me, for me mm-hmm. in particular at the time and now how to create even more ease. So Absolutely. Yeah, to tune into the present, everything about creating ease. And that's amazing. I love it. I love how it's a command to like create ease. Do it. Just do it. Just do it. Create ease. Just do it. Choose. Because I think anytime we feel stressed, a lot of times we think we don't have choice. And that's where the stress is coming from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, anything that's really stressing us out is like we think we don't have a choice. So we're coming to our last question. One last bit of advice or wisdom about essentialism and it could be several bits i don't have to hold you to one because you've got a lot of wisdom okay, i've got the one. Oh, you do one. okay I okay what is it i did uh-huh. Uh-huh. what this. is it but then you- with a caveat so i have the one okay. but then if it's all right i would like to share a brief passage from essentialist Please. it's a really critical yes. one yes okay okay so my one bit of advice for anyone listening any leader any non-essentialist any budding essentialist anyone is that to become an essentialist requires a heightened awareness of your ability to choose. And I think that it goes back to what you just said a moment ago about stress. Everything around essentialism is about choice and that you have your ability to choose, but all it takes is for you to be aware of that and then mm. to do it. So that's yeah. my one. That's I love my one. it. Yes. Be aware to it. it. It's kind of a thing. It's kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. But then this passage I wanted to share because it's just brief. It's like three sentences. Um, it's from nearing the end of the book. And it's Greg when he's talking about what this looks like when you have become an essentialist. And not everything's applicable. I, you know, some of it I don't think is absolutely applicable, but it might be to your listeners or to someone coming across this podcast and they're curious about essentialism. But it says, once you become an essentialist, you will find that you aren't like anybody else. When other people are saying yes, you will find yourself saying no. When other people are doing, you will find yourself thinking. When other people are speaking, you will find yourself listening. When others are in the spotlight vying for attention, you will find yourself waiting on the sidelines until it is time to shine. While other people are padding their resumes and building out their LinkedIn profiles, you will be building a career of meaning. While other people are complaining, read, bragging about how busy they are, you will just be smiling sympathetically, unable to relate. While other people are living a life of stress and chaos, you will be living a life of impact and fulfillment. In many ways, to live as an essentialist in our too many things all the time society is an act of quiet revolution. Ooh, that's awesome. (laughs) It's good. (laughs) Yes, I was writing down all of the like positives. So thinking, listening, waiting, Mm -hmm. career of meaning, Mm -hmm. impact, fulfillment, an act of quiet revolution. Yep, it's just beautiful. And I think what's so interesting about I'm so glad you found this book, Susie, because this is the essence of ease. And I'm so glad that this helped reinforce that for you. Mm, I love that. I'm writing that down, too. But now I need to hear your advice. (laughs) Uh, So two things I said is this question, is this the best use of my time right now? Mm -hmm. So that to me, that question is it will help if you can't somehow get to, okay, I'm going to be at this big intent. I'm not ready to do all that now. One very 
easy way to step in is to write this down, put it on the top of your calendar and every morning write it down again. And, and I like to set up my days. I set up my weeks in advance in regard to what I'm going to focus on priorities, but also at the end of every day, I set up the next day, you know, my mind and I list. So, you know, go back and say, how did I use my time today? Is this the best use of my time right now? As you plan the next day. Um, And then the second Mm -hmm. thing that I think we all struggle with and is is the biggest challenge to this is to remember it's not selfish to say no. Oh, stabs right at the heart of it. <laughs> yeah. It does. Yeah. It's not yeah. selfish to say no. Oh my gosh. And we think yeah. it is, you know, and and we can say yes to the priorities and the other stuff. We may disappoint some people. Um, and I, I get that. Yeah. My husband can be more accommodating sometimes than I am personally. And I will say no more than he does. Now, he says no, no more at work. And I say no more personally. And so and sometimes I think, oh, man, I'm such a funny dud. You know, I'd rather do something else than go do this other thing. And he'll say yes to accommodate. But anyway, so it's it's a, a statement to myself, too. I need to be doing more of that around my work. So beautiful. I love it. I absolutely love it. Well, it's been an awesome conversation. Thank you for, for one, for many things, but one, sharing all of your wisdom around essentialism and the way you've taken hold of this. And two, letting me play along by making this a duo conversation. I love it. Well, thank you so much for having me. I just, the part of my essential intent is to help other people find theirs. So I'm just so glad that, you know, this opportunity came up and Um, that it was in line with my essential intent and just to talk with you and share our fun yet challenging insights from adopting this process in our own lives. It's been awesome. All righty. Well, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. All right. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I enjoyed being able to participate in it and bringing it to you. I loved so much of what Catherine shared and particularly near the end, just as a reminder, have a heightened awareness that you have the ability to choose. That is so much wisdom. And then maybe go back and re listen to play back that statement at the end about once you're in essentialism, how you'll be thinking more, you'll be listening more. You're going to have a career of meaning. Um, You're not going to be able to relate to being stressed out and too busy. You have a life of impact and fulfillment, and it is an act of quiet revolution. So it's like, it's nice to have a vision and just hearing her read that statement, that'd be a good way to stay inspired and to keep that future in mind if you're not feeling as much of that as you'd like to feel right now. And just remember, it's not selfish to say no. That's something we're all learning all the time. So if you have feedback, reach out to us, go to the show notes, pricelessprofessional.com forward slash essentialism. You'll see all my contact information there. You'll see the speak pipe, little purple microphone. Click that, leave us some feedback. I'd also love some feedback around what you do for your own tune in time. I'll share that on that episode. So what do you do for quiet time? Do you have a certain book you read, a certain way you write? Do you go on a retreat every year? Do you do something every day? Just what do you do for tune-in time? I'd love to hear it. So we are doing the series, and episode number 66 is my top mind tip, and it's 
pricelessprofessional.com forward slash essentialism. That's this episode. The next episode is pricelessprofessional.com forward slash fasting. And that's my number one body tip for 2019 and going into 2020 is intermittent fasting. We talked to Amy Land about her experience with intermittent fasting. She was a human resource director and now moved into being a health coach. And then episode number 68 is going to dive deep into tune-in time. And that's pricelessprofessional.com forward slash tune-in time. It's all one word. And so I'd love to have some of your insight around tune-in time. I've captured what other people do, their own personal retreats and time they take to think and creating space. So I can't wait to record that as well. It's been super fun. Just such a blessing to be able to do this podcast and to have people like you listening um, thank you. Greatly appreciated. And big thanks for Catherine, too, for taking the time to be here today and, and for her being using her talents and gifts in the world. So many blessings. We'll talk to you on the next episode. Take care. This episode of the Wake Up Eager Workforce Podcast was brought to you by Priceless Professional Development. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's show, head over to pricelessprofessional.com to gain access to more professional development resources. 